0: Uh, lastly, uh, relative to uh, giving announcements, um, annual giving stuff will be ava- the uh, giving statements will be available after January thirty first. You can download them on the hub. If you're bad with those computer thingies, uh, you can ask somebody here, or as your way out, or contact Kelly Shear um, for that. Also, um, relative to two thousand and twenty, uh, I-, I asked um, Brandon for a few summaries relative to that, and if you if you add up together, not even everything. Um, the amount of giving we did last year outside of our church to support people during the COVID stuff um, was was uh, right around in a little over $200,000. Um, that's in addition to giving about 13 to 15% of our total budget to missions. And a lot of that went to COVID stuff this year too. Um, it, so that means that this last year we gave somewhere around between 23 and 25% of our total giving away um, outside of our church to global missions and to people in need during COVID, which is really amazing. I, I, I don't know of any, other, I don't know of any church that's done that. I'm sure lots of churches have, but it's, I think it's pretty rare, and I think it's a really, a really great thing. So, praise God that, um, I, just, I praise God, um, just that he's, he's working in us for generosity. I think it's great, even though we're not enriching ourselves or anything like that. It makes, it's a good thing. All right, <clears throat> let me read two more scriptures for you before We get going into the sermon. Matthew 5, 21-24, and Ephesians 2, 11-16. Matthew 5, 21-24 says this. Jesus is speaking. You've heard it said—you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, if anyone says to his brother, raka, which means kind of empty headed fool, he's answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering a gift at the altar, and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, and first go and be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Ephesians 2, 11, 16 says this, the apostle speaking to the church, Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth, called uncircumcised by those who called themselves the circumcision, that done in the body with the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. And he has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two thus making peace, and in this one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. Generally speaking, the way we talk, hatred is something other people have towards us, and indignation is something we have towards other people, right? hostility is another one of these areas of creative euphemisms where we, we call the thing we do something different than what we properly name as sin what other people do, right? Because and the main difference is we have the right reason. We do it for the right reasons, and they do it for the wrong reasons. And yet the Bible, in many places, from the Old Testament and Leviticus, all the way through the teachings of Jesus into the apostles, all the way through towards the enmity that you can conceive in the book of Revelation— between peoples, is constantly warning us about enmity, about hatred, about hostility, and that the human heart loves it to the extent to which it's dominated by what the Bible calls the flesh, or the willingness to give ourselves to what's worse than us, right? And um, Scripture also says that it is the work of Christ to destroy that hostility, especially in the context of those who belong to Jesus, what the Scripture's called the body of Christ, or the brothers and sisters of the faith. That because we're connected to God, the reconciler, right, that creates a necessity that we reconcile with each other. For those who are not reconciled to God and have not submitted themselves— that, that he should have wrath on them, and it's only by mercy that they're reconciled, or have no hostility between them and God, that they're totally accepted by God. People who don't have that basis with God, on the basis of which to say, well, I have to do that then with my brother, they may not enter into that. We may not always be able to put away hostility with those who aren't believers, but we can't always seek peace and be peacemakers with those who aren't believers and leave the result of that to God. But what Scripture teaches is that in the body of Christ, we're not just supposed to be peacemakers. We are supposed to actually achieve reconciliation. And that it is a deductive truth that when believers don't reconcile, we are not living up to the reality of Jesus crucified and risen, reconciling us to God and therefore reconciling us to each other. There's something wrong with our faith, and we have to experience reform in that so that we can really be reconciled with our brothers and sisters. We should never stop trying to be reconciled, especially with somebody who you know or you really believe is a believer. If they're a believer and you're a believer, you have the spiritual, emotional, and human resources to be reconciled to them if it's pursued. So last week we talked about the fact that Jesus um, put our enmity and our hostility to death in his death on the cross. It says that twice in Ephesians 2. It says that he destroyed or demolished the barrier of hostility and that in his body, he put our hostility to death. That when his physical human body was put to death, he was putting to death our interpersonal hostility. Do you understand? You being reconciled to God through your salvation, being forgiven of your sins, is just as true. This thing I'm saying right now is just as true as that. You are reconciled to God by having your sins forgiven, by Jesus dying for your sins. And in that same crucifixion where your sins were forgiven, he was putting to death the hostility between us. Now listen to me. You cannot live your life believing in one of those and not the other. Christian, listen, if you believe in Jesus, you cannot do that. Now you can, you can fail. You can fail in the right direction. You can, you can, like, you can—there could be struggle. There could be difficulty. But there cannot be acceptance. You can't make peace with that. You can't be angry and have hostility towards other believers, either in your church, in your social group, in your family, or of different ethnicities in other churches across town or in the world. You can't, you can't accept it. It's not acceptable. You have to constantly live in a state of like, no, we're going to, we're going to do something about this. No, I'm not going to become okay with this. I'm never going to be okay with this. Because being reconciled to each other is as real as us being reconciled to God. Right? It doesn't look as real, because we don't do it as well. God always does a really good job of reconciling with us when we ask for forgiveness. But we often don't act very reconciled toward God. I mean, all of it, a lot of us are filled with guilt and frustration and shame that we're not supposed to even need to feel. We don't feel accepted by God. Sometimes we're just as bad as being reconciled to God as we are being reconciled to each other. We're just pretty bad at that, all this kind of spiritual, godly, morality, spirituality stuff but our convictions have to be clear that God has reconciled us to himself. We need believe it. And God has in his son reconciled us to each other and we should pour ourselves out to achieve it, right? Now, um, last week I quoted Martin Luther King from his sermon, uh, Love Your Enemies, where he says, therefore the Christian attitude should be to even our enemies, I love you and I would rather die than hate you. Now, somebody came back and said in the question at the AMA that, that asked me anything, um, Nick, where is that in the Bible? And there's, there's a lot of things that are true that we say as Christians that aren't literally word for word in the Bible, but there's, there's two places. One is, as I just said, literally in the cross, Jesus, what did he put away? When Jesus reconciled us to God, what was he putting away? Well, the opposite of reconciliation is wrathful division, right? The Bible says that those of us who won't be reconciled to God— are split away from him in righteous enmity, and we will ultimately receive his wrath. That is the righteous outworking of his destructive righteous hatred, right? And he chose in the person of his son to die to make possible for every human being for that not to happen. He would—he would rather lay his life down in the person of his son to put away his righteous hatred. How much more—how much more should we lay our lives down or rather die that cling on to our petty, unrighteous, mixed hatreds, right? And what Jesus also says is, like, he says, listen, you've heard people say in the past, or people say around you, like, um, you know, murder's bad and it should have a reckoning. He's like, listen, if you're angry enough of people to derisively call them a fool, you're in danger of the fires of hell. What does he mean by that? In danger of the fire of hell. Well, here, here, he, that's what he means. He means you're in danger of the fire of hell. Now, does he mean you lose your salvation if you say uh, you're a fool? I don't think it's as literal as that. I think what he's saying is this. is He's saying if your heart harbors the entitlement to derisively rea- reach out and strike another member of the image-bearing human race that way, if you're willing to treat other image-bearers that way, What's happening is your hostility—the hostility that you have in your heart that makes you willing to do that— is corrupting you from the inside. It's destroying your capacity for faith. It's ruining your—the your, capacity for the seed of faith to grow into something beautiful. It's, it's damning you from the inside. And so the result will be no faith, no trust in God, no reconciliation to God, and a hardening of your conscience ultimately to self-righteousness and ultimately damnation. And it can start with something as simple as, you stupid idiot. You're in danger. Now think about your last three months. How many of us are in danger? Right, okay. Now, last week I talked a little bit about um, what would that look like, and what I want to do is I want to continue diagnosing pastorally three things that I think we need to think as, like, applications of this. Like, what's happening? You have to, we have to ask in discernment and wisdom right now, how is this sneaking up on us? Because you, we shouldn't believe that the flesh and the devil and sin is gonna, like, put out a big neon sign. Here's how I'm trying to destroy you. It's always going to be a specific application for our times and our situation. It's something we don't expect, we're not ready for, we're not thinking about, right? One of them I said last week was that love pursues portraits. And hostility really craves caricatures. A caricature is when you take the least flattering, normal attribute of somebody, and you magnify it until it makes them all look wholly ridiculous in your mind. And we do that constantly with people. There's something we don't like about them, or something we're told we shouldn't like about them by somebody else, and then we fixate on that, and then the image of them in our mind, that thing grows and it makes them look weird, right? They look ridiculous. And then the minute somebody looks ridiculous, we can, we can engage in what the scripture calls conceit. We can believe that we're better than them in a meaningful way, even if it's just that one thing. And it's amazing what the sinful heart, dominated by the flesh, can use to justify ourselves that we are better than somebody because we've created a character in our mind of somebody else. And notice that when I say craves caricatures, a craving is something you don't have to go look for. You don't have to work. It's like craving ice cream or craving salty stuff. You don't have to work at that. You don't have to grow. You don't have to exert discipline. You don't have to exert faith for that. You just want it. You just crave it. Just not, the flesh just already wants it. You don't have to do anything. People just spew out gossip, and you just drink it in because it tastes good. It tastes like sugar. You know what I'm saying? It feels good. But portraits have to actually be pursued, right? You see how that word, word is a active word? You have, to, you have to go out there and, like, you know, and find out what that person's really like and try to construct a real portrait of who they really are. And, ve- I mean, in my life, I've made so many caricatures of so many people. And whenever the Lord has convicted me about that, and I go and get to know that person a little better, I always find I'm wrong. Like, it may still be that their nose is a little bigger than the rest of their face, figuratively speaking, but it's not so big as to make them ridiculous. It's really understandable, and you begin to see them as a real person. You get to realize why they're the way they are, and why they—why you feel the way you do about them. Right? And the, the culture we're living in right now is an enmity factory. Social media could hardly be better created putting kids all in school with kids their same age, Like, there's all kinds of cultural things we do without even thinking about it, just for efficiency's sake, that could hardly be better organized to make us all dislike each other over little things. And it's really not just social media, like the ability to talk online. It's the fact that everything is algorithmed so that you're more and more and more touched by things just like you, which is often disliking things that aren't like you. And so we go through this process, like I talked about last week, where we, we feel superior, and then we start separating from people, and then we caricature them, and then we can do things against them because they have to be stopped because they're toxic, whether that's a soft kind of oppression or a hard or violent kind. And so when we do that, we're doing exactly what Jesus chose not to do, right? Right? Jesus was superior to us. We are actually sinful. It's right for him to separate because of sin. That could have led him to characterize us, not caricature us, to, as totally worthless in sin, and therefore to curse us and then ultimately damn us. He literally did the opposite of that, right? And so for us, in order for us to fight against this tendency, we have to specifically fight our way back up this ladder. And so when we find ourselves caricaturing someone, we have to fight. We have to fight to make a portrait of them, not a caricature. And the only way to do that then is to show up in their life and be there enough to find out who they really are, and in doing so, to have enough humble compassion about our own problems and their own problems that we don't feel superior to them. And that process builds godliness, and it is—and love will accomplish it. If we obey the demand of love and we're drawn to people to act lovingly rather than in hostility, this will happen, right? So, love pursues, portraits, not caricatures. The other two things are this. One, love shows up, right? That's step two. And then the third is, is that love cultivates the good rather than just attacks its enemy. Rather than just attacking your enemy to beat them, love cultivates the good to make the good more good and beautiful so that you can win over your enemy. Right? Okay. So first, love shows up and hostility separates. If—I often encourage Christians to read Matthew 25 as one single discourse. Jesus tells three parables. The one is about these ten virgins or bridesmaids. They're women who haven't been married yet, and they're waiting for the bridegroom and the bride to show up for the party. And they're waiting a long time, and they all have little lamps, and they've lit their lamps, and then their lamps all burn out. But five of the virgins are prepared. They actually have another little bottle of oil so they can refill their lamp and relight it when the bride and the groom come, so that they can engage in the celebration, because everyone's supposed to have a light. That's how this works, right? The others don't. And so when the bride and the groom show up, right, the, the, the women who don't have any more oil, they're like, give us your oil. And they're like, no, that's not how this works, man. I have—because if you've ever been to Israel, you can get a little bottle, and it is exactly the size of the lamp. So you bring—you you pour it in the lamp, and it's empty. Right? It exactly fills the limb. So if you, you brought extra oil, you actually don't have extra oil to pour in yours, and in somebody else's, and in somebody else's, and in somebody else's. You have enough for the duration of the party. You don't really—you have extra for you, but not extra for them. And so what happens is, is that the, these, these um, bridesmaids who are prepared for whatever would be demanded of them from the bridegroom before they arrived, they were prepared, they go in, and the others are shut out. Right? And that's a That's an image of salvation of perseverance, of being ready to walk in faith through whatever, and to be ready when Jesus returns, right? And you're like, oh, that's a beautiful picture of personal salvation and how faithful perseverance is necessary. Okay, the next parable right after that is the parable of the talents, right? Where the master brings three people in. He gives one, like, ten talents, which is a lot of money, five talents, which is less but a lot, and one talent, which is not that much relative to the others, but still a lot of money. A talent is a lot of money. So one is a lot you like, I don't know, $300,000 or something like that. It's a lot. And then he goes and tells them to invest it, right? And the first two invest it beautifully. The last guy buries it and just gives it back to when he comes back. And the last guy gets in trouble. The guy with the least, the most disempowered person gets in trouble. Gets thrown out to hell the, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? What's the story? The story is, listen, it doesn't matter how much you get. What you do when you're waiting is you invest the gifts God has given you for the things that he cares about. And if you—the only way to fail is to not invest. You can lose the money. You can, you can do the least savvy investment. You can just put the money in the bank and get less than 1% off of it. And the master says, I would have been happy with that, but because you did literally nothing. I'm very upset because you just completely disregarded what I gave you this gift for. Right. So now the question is, okay, so we better invest while we're waiting We better invest what God has given us. Well, how do we do it, right? There's no, there's no bank of Jesus to invest in, right? And the answer is, we'll read the next parable, which is the sheep and the goats, right? Where Jesus returns, and he calls some people sheep and some people goats, and the difference is, is that he said, whether or not you served and cared for the least among us, you cared for me, or you ignored me. And so he talks about people who are poor and without clothing, and homeless, and in prison, and suffering all kinds of misfortunes. People who can't do anything for us, materially speaking, or socially speaking. And he said, to the extent to which you love those people, you love me. You see the point—the investment point here? They are the investment, right? The people who can't do anything for us. They are the investment God is talking about. They are the ten talents that get you back ten talents. They are the five talents that get you back five talents. Jesus said, if you give a cup of cold water, that is a simple but wholesome gift for the true good of the other, you cannot lose your reward. Do you understand? Jesus' argument for how we invest the gifts he's given us for maximum return for God and then for us is that we love God the least people among us, the people least capable of giving back to us. Right? And some of those people we're going to naturally despise because they're not doing the things that naturally bring us into our social circles. There's a lot of—there is a lot of uh, hostility between the needy and the non-needy. I don't know if you realize this. I'm not—I can't—I have time to get into it right now. But one of the things um, that—there's this— this a republican african american woman who lives in california was talking with these with um on uh, this podcast called speakeasy with two african american hosts one is a nigerian christian woman and she's a this woman here is a christian and they were like why do you think in, in america african americans have voted in such small percentages for republicans in recent decades and she's like well she's like here's what I think happened i think things got crazy in the 60s and 70s and she said things l- did get crazy when people talk about white flight things were crazy in the urban centers like i don't blame them but they did leave And the thing is, is that, good or bad, influence goes to those who show up. He said, She said, frankly, because she's a Republican, she thinks most of the stuff that's actually being done in the inner cities is actually not even good for the poor. But she's like, listen, good or bad, influence always goes to those who show up. Listen, five-tenths of love is showing up. It's just being there. Right? Love, in one sense, is giving up a little bit of your life to bring somebody else a little more to life. And whether it's our enemies that we have hostility with, whether it's people who need and we can be there for, whether it's people that we're just having a conflict with in the body of Christ, whatever the—whether it's your teenager because you just want to like throw under a moving vehicle, like whatever, whatever it is—I don't feel that way about my teenagers, just for clarity's sake. Uh, I know some people do because I do counseling. And whatever it is, whatever the hostility is, whatever the difficulty is, whatever the problem is, Right? Five tenths of love is just showing up. It's just getting in there, and it's the only way to defeat separation, because hostility separates. It wants to get away from toxic people. It wants to get away from the people that are difficult. It wants to get away from the people that are going to ask us stuff that we don't want to give them. We want to get away from people who are going to make us feel uncomfortable for whatever reason, to put us in positions we don't feel like we should be put into. We want to get away from those people. It's very natural. It is not what we've been called to do in service of Jesus the Christ. And this is why, like in our church's secondary core values, we've tried to isolate things that we naturally would separate from and not focus on and just let happen because it's it's frustrating to do it. Evangelism, bringing the reconciliation message to people that don't even want it, right? That's uncomfortable. I'd like to separate from that, but I can't. Five-tenths of love is showing up, right? Leadership, like investing in people, like taking time to spend with people so that they can grow and develop. I can't tell you how many hours I spend like just investing in people and investing in people and investing in people, waiting for those investments to pay off, right? It's a lot of time and I would rather watch TV or just hang out with my wife or eat ice cream or— I mean, there's so many things. Sometimes I would rather do that. I actually do really enjoy spending time with people, but sometimes I just— it can feel tedious and there's things in my life that are important that I'm, I'm taking life and giving that person life to bring them more to life. Like, it's, there's a life cost— That I'm offering, right? But it has to be done, right? If the people of God aren't led well, they they flounder like sheep without a shepherd, right? Multi-generational, right? God blesses all generations from all generations. To be a mature person is to be a person who can talk to a three-year-old, an 84-year-old, a 52-year-old, a 61-year-old, a 32-year-old, a 22-year-old. Like, all in six minutes and not even, like, paying any attention to how old they were, whether or not they were a lot like you, but receiving blessing from people of all different experiences, ages, and generations. And we naturally move away from that and move towards people who are in our life stage, and their life is circling around just like ours, and it's not good for us. And it ultimately creates hostility, and it comes from separation, and five-tenths of love is showing up. That's why we encourage people to be in multi-generational small groups and things like that. And then multi-ethic and international, right? Nobody feels like they're racist. And most people aren't in the most pernicious sense, but it's still easier to be around people culturally like us, right? Even people with our same skin color, they're just from a different subculture, still come off as kind of weird, and it's easiest to be around people like us. Like, listen, if I got a bunch of white East Coast people and white Southerners and white Midwesterners and put them all in a room, they'd all split into their little groups, right? You know, the Midwesters would be like talking in their little accents, and they'd like be passive-aggressive with each other, but like bake a lot of really nice things. And be, right in the Southerners would be, bless, you know, bless your heart and whatever. And the, you know, the, the East Coasters would be yelling at each other, having a great time. You know, and, and like the Wooden Misters would be like clutching their pearls over People were, like, I like, I can't believe people talk like that, right? And, and they all split up, They're all the same race, right? But like, it's when you like, like, I, listen, I've pastored in the Northeast. I've pastored in the South. I've pastored twice in the Midwest. And I've had to become a different human being in each place. And everybody's the same race, but my job forces me to move towards people, so I can't get out of it. But the church must, across cultures, across ethnicities, across nations, including heart languages and so on, we have to move towards each other. Right? Now, I got a lot more I'd love to say about that. I got to move on because I'm running out of time. Okay. Third, hostility attacks enemies to beat them. Love invests in the good so that we can win our enemies, okay? One metaphor sometimes people think of is the way we see things should be is like a city that we live in, that has walls. And the people who are our enemies are the people that don't value those things and want to tear them down. Those people are the barbarians, and they're trying to break through our gates and destroy our way of life. Right? And they have to be kept out. And so we need to tell the people in the city, get to the gates and fight the enemies. And, and, and there's some, there's some, maybe there's some truth to that, but here's the thing. Nobody fights if the city isn't shining. You know what I mean? Nobody wants to defend a heap of rubble or a poisoned city. Like, sometimes we don't realize, like, look, in the church, it's hard for young people to stand up in a secular culture and believe in Jesus and say, I don't care what you think of me. I don't care what you say about me. I don't care what opportunities you destroy because of my faith. I am a believer, right? And we think, you should do that. Why? Because... Jesus is true, so who cares what it costs you? If you're going to be a real person, you have to live by the truth, right? But here's the thing. When young people walk away, do they walk away because the barbarians broke down the walls, or did they walk away because our city wasn't shining in the first place? Right? Which is it? I don't know. I tend to think we deride the church more than we should, and we treat her like she's worse than she is, and young people tend to find fault with everything, and if their parents if their religious faith is at the core of who they are in their religious community, their church is at the core of who they are. Kids, of course, want to differentiate from their parents, and so let's differentiate from the thing that's the most important to our parents, their religion, right? And so there's a lot of consternation and dislike among children that is just part of their development psychologically, okay? But there can also be a lot of meanness at church. There can, there can be a lot of like, get off my lawn, and you're like, don't play in that gym because you're gonna ruin the drywall, even though it's a gym. Don't run in the church because you're going to fall and hurt yourself. Who cares? It's themselves. It's still learn. You know, like, I, or, or, you know, like, or, you know what I'm talking about? Like, there, there's a lot of, like, it's, it's very easy. Or, or just people are just maybe they're not mean, but they're just not godly. People, kids, kids, well, like, listen, if, if you talk to a 30-year-old Christian, they're like, I don't want to get married because marriage looks like it stinks. Where did they not unlearn that? Right? Like, I understand if, like, Their secular friends, or their friends at work, all their marriages stink. But why don't they think that Christian faith differentiates whether or not you can have a good marriage? I want them to think, listen, the big difference is, is that the believers I know have really great marriages, and they love each other, and they serve each other, right? And then the the unbelievers, they seem to struggle more. There seems to be a correlation with submitting yourself to Jesus with this marriage thing, in terms of happiness and success, right? That's what they should be thinking, not, well, everybody's marriage stinks, so maybe marriage stinks. People, as a believer, what we need to focus on is before we worry about the barbarians, we need to make sure the city is shining. We, we need to pursue an increased amount of vibrancy and reform. That's why the, the message of the Reformation was reformed and always reforming, right? It was—we are defending—we're reforming something that's already good. Like, it's good to believe in Jesus. It's good to know Christ. It's good to believe in the scriptures. It's good to believe the gospel, right? And yet. We're sinners. We're always falling into corruption. And we have to constantly be re-reforming ourselves according to how Jesus has already started to reform us. Otherwise, we will fall into corruption. And the reason that was so close to their heart is they looked at the Roman Catholic Church. That was the church, the early church, the church that overcame Rome. And they saw by 1500 that it was in such rampant corruption that it was unrecognizable to the vibrancy of earlier. And that can be us. And friends, it doesn't take a thousand years. It can take just a couple of years as a church, or a couple of decades. And we can't hold ourselves out as a people who are working to reconcile the world if we cannot reconcile with each other. And we can't be peacemakers. If we aren't reconciled with each other in this room, in our families, in our marriages, in our friendships, in our ministries, in our outreaches, in our congregational meetings, if we aren't reconciled, there is no bleeping way the world is ever going to believe we have been given by God a ministry or a service of reconciliation. There's no way. I mean, Paul glories to this in Second Corinthians. He says, friends, right? all this, he's just explaining the Gospels from God who's reconciled us to himself through Christ and given us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he's commanded us, to us, committed to us the the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his own appeal through us. We implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Right? Unless the city is shining, unless we pursue the good, unless we pursue godliness among ourselves, unless we pursue humility and drawing close to each other and rejecting characters and all that, there's no way that we can say, I'm appealing to you, unbelieving friends, unbelieving city, be reconciled to God. And for them to say, you know, it was like God himself was making his appeal through them. But that's, that's what it can be like. If we experience the fullness of Christ, that's what it can be like. People can experience us telling them to be reconciled to God through Christ, and they can feel like God himself is making his request through us. But only if we embody, like a shining city, the beauty of being reconciled. Okay, I'm supposed to be done preaching already. I want to cover these because I think it's really important. So I'll try to do it quickly and clearly. Um, If we invest in the good, of pursuing reform in ourselves so that we can win over our enemies rather than trying to beat them, there's some things that happen that are very important. One is, it lessens our hypocrisy and their moral disillusionment. It lessens our hypocrisy and their moral disillusionment. You see, people give up on the good. They give into sin more deeply as part of their identity, as, as becoming more unbelieving people because the good doesn't seem to avail anything. I remember one time, one of my kids was starting to tell more lies, and my older kids were getting really upset at that. I know that narrows it down to only two of my kids. And then um, they were like, Dad, you need to jump on Kid X because, you know, they're saying stuff that not true, and that's a lie, and Jesus hates lies. I'm like, yeah, but how do you treat him when he tells the truth? Right? Like, you taught him this. Like, in this house— the truth doesn't matter enough. You still overpower him when he tells the truth. You, if he tells you the truth and you're wrong, you don't repent and say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. You jump out of the discussion of truth and you just use your power to rail over this kid. And so of course this kid isn't going to tell the truth. He, re, he or she realizes it's all about power here. It's all about power. And so what does the truth avail? What does it matter? So why should I tell the truth? Right? You see, it, that kid should tell the truth. The truth is the truth. We should be people of the truth. But listen, people often give in to and not just because they hate it, not just because they want to hate God, not just because they want to be as inhuman as they can be. They give up on the good because they become disillusioned that it matters anywhere. And so you see, when we move towards our enemies, and we begin to realize why they dislike us, and we begin to realize that they're not wholly wrong, and we begin to realize what ways we've been hypocrites— and we begin to, like, accept that and be able to repent of it some and be able—right? What can often happen is the people who are our enmi- enemies that are more—they suffer disillusionment because of how we've acted. They're people who have left the church—even this church, but like lots of churches—because they, they were disillusioned. And they need to encounter a, maybe a different church, maybe different Christians, that help them with that disillusionment because they have been willing to face their hypocrisy because they were willing to face their critical enemies. Right, there's this great quote by um, by Martin Luther King in that sermon where he says, "Think about, because this was the height of the Cold War when he was doing this in '57. Everybody hated Russia. He's not thinking about Russia. We can never accept the Russian way of life as Christians. Can never accept it. Communism treats people's people like their ends for whatever means communism wants. It doesn't treat human beings as human beings. There's a." Atheistic materialism that Christians can't possibly accept because we believe in God. But let's ask this question. Why is half the world now covered in communism? In many places embracing it with semi-open arms, only to be disillusioned by it later. Or is, is it the failure of democracy and capitalism and the Western nations and then the power of Western nations, we engage in imperialism, and showed the rapacity of power that we had that was unreformed in our Christianity nationally. And we were the ones who engaged in certain kinds of capitalism that that turned a lot of African nations and and South Asian nations against us. They didn't see good people in us. And, And we were the ones who haven't lived up to democracy. We say democracy means everybody really is equal. People in this country can't even vote, he's saying in 1957. He's like, don't you see that it's our democracy failure that has led some people to open their arms to murderous communism. And we should not just stand there and say, communism bad, communism bad, communism bad, even though communism is bad. We have to say, for God's sakes, we got to figure out how to be Christian, democratic, and capitalistic, and free exchange in a beautiful way, or people will run from us. And in that process, right, we begin to overcome our blindness and we begin to understand our neighbor's resistance, right? I've had lots of talks with leaders in African American churches and struggle over some of these things because we believe all the same stuff in the Bible, but we see things in the world very differently. And those are difficult conversations, man, because I ha- i mean, I look kept thought a lot about the way I see the world, and so have they, and sometimes it's really— I do experience when I move towards people who, like, they're not— technically my enemies, especially these friends in the church, but they they function kind of like enemies because I'm in disagreement with them. I could easily fall into hostility, right? And I'm like, why do you think that? And they tell me something. and I'm like, you know, that's not stupid. And then they're like, well, why do you think that? And I go, well, th- here's why. And they're like, and almost to the man, they're like, I've never thought about that. I mean, in the circles I run, and we never talk about that, right? And what happens is I lose some of my blindness, and my friend loses some of his resistance, and then he loses some of his blindness, and I lose some of my resistance in that process. And as that happens, I start to have hope, real hope, that by throwing away the caricature and seeking a portrait, by moving toward the person rather than accepting the natural work of separation, and by seeking to pursue, to put away conceit, to embrace humility, and try to draw close to my enemy even, or the needy, or the different, or the whatever, like, I begin to be more prepared because I know how they really feel. I know what's really going on. I really can make an appeal like it's God's appeal through me, and I'm motivated to do it because I think it could happen. Right? It's frustrating to us, I think. And I'll finish with this, so worship guys, you can go if you want. Um, at first blush, it looks like God tests our faith by testing our love in our relationship to people who are the most unlike us our enemies, and the needy, right? But how soon we forget, right? In the gospel, those two things are exactly our identity before God. Do you realize that? Before Christ, those are—that's your identity as a human being before God. You were his enemy, and you needed something you could never earn on yourself. There was no bootstraps for you. You were lost in sin, dead in transgressions. You are his enemy, and you are needy. And desperately needed somebody to unilaterally, out of their own generosity, to fulfill your need. And that was Christ to you. He reconciled the enemy, and he gave you righteousness. And so he says to us, don't forget, don't forget. That enemy, that was you. You were the enemy. You were that enemy. And I, I would rather, I rather, I chose death over hating you. And now you're mine, and now you're being made like me, and now you would rather die than hate these enemies, because I'm making my appeal through you to reconcile the world to God. And that's true of the needy, too. Right? We were nothing but in need until Christ gave us freely everything we needed so that we could be reconciled to God, so that we could be part of a family, so that we could know that we're accepted. And that is what he's called us to do. And in acting like Jesus, we find out that Jesus himself is bound up in the things he cares about, which is our enemies and the needy, just as much as he cares about us. And when we do something for them, we do something for someone who's at his very heart. If we do it, we do it for him. We invest the gifts he's given us and we reap an eternal reward for them, for God, and for us. The life we've poured out to make others alive, he has done a thousand times before us and does it in and with us. God, we pray that you'd help us to love you and to love our enemies, to put away hostility and hatred, and to become people of the kind of spirit and life that you have made us to be. Help us to have so much hope in you that we can exert faith in the application of love. In Jesus' name. We're going to take a couple minutes as these guys play some music.